This episode contains descriptions of sexual encounters that Peter Piper had with prostitutes, as well as vulgar language quoted directly from police reports. This material is not suitable for children or adults who are uncomfortable with discussions of a raw sexual nature. Please do not listen if hearing the details of what prostitutes encounter on a daily basis is something you believe you cannot handle. I have not made an effort to tone down or soft pedal the material. It is what it is, and you have been warned. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now I'm not usually one for quoting the Bible, but I think this chapter in the history of violence perpetrated by Peter Piper perfectly illustrates that scripture. Would it surprise you to know that prostitutes were, in the end, the ones responsible for getting Peter Piper put back where he belonged? Well, prostitutes and the cops who believed them when they reported the violence that they all encountered from the same John. I don't think it's a stretch to imagine how police could have ignored their stories, given what they do for a living. We as a society often devalue the lives of people that we believe don't live in a way that conforms to our personal standards. It's also another way that we blame the victim. Let's be honest, society generally looks down on women who take money for sex. But you'd be surprised at how often they're involved in helping identify criminals, which, in turn, keeps the rest of us safe. This is because they're out there on the street every night, they see who's passing through, and are often targets themselves for sexual predators. Now, I'm not here to say that prostitution is a noble venture. It is what it is, and there are all sorts of reasons why women end up doing it. I'm merely suggesting that the profession is inhabited by humans who, like the rest of us, are generally just trying to make it through another day. What I do know is that Peter Piper had a predilection for non-consensual sexual interactions regardless of who the female was and what she did for a living. That was part of his M.O. Everything I've read about the man suggests that he got something out of scaring women and forcing them to have sex with him. Peter Piper liked violence, and he liked instilling fear. He literally got off on it. So I feel like we all owe this scrappy bunch of women a debt of gratitude. They certainly appear to have been way more successful in the short time they came into contact with Peter Piper than the jailers in Lake County who allowed him to escape in the first place. The true irony here is that it doesn't appear that Piper ventured very far. It looks like he spent most of the two years he was out of jail right under their noses. During this time period, 
Piper preyed on women who worked the streets in a very contained area of about a ten-mile radius, and it was also very near where he assaulted Mary almost two decades earlier. He was clearly a creature of habit. In August of 1985, a woman named Rhonda, who worked as a prostitute, reported an assault by a white male that she described as 25 to 32 years old, 5'9 to 5'11, and had a short beard with about one inch of growth and light brown hair. His M.O. was pretty specific. He would pull up, ask how much, negotiate a price, and then, once he got them into the car, he would drive them out of downtown and park in an isolated area, literally across the tracks, and then begin threatening them. Suck my cock or I'll kill you. That's what he said to Rhonda. There does appear to be a certain point in these situations where you can see some of the women realizing they're going to have to comply or get hurt. Rhonda feigned compliance. And then she bit him. Of this, the police report says, quite eloquently, the white male did not agree to the discomfort. The teeth were embedded in his penis. He then began hitting Rhonda with his fists. Rhonda got out of the car and the white male fled. Rhonda was treated at St. Mary's Hospital for a possible broken jaw, and when the incident was reported, she agreed to go into the station the next day to follow up. Her complaint was almost closed after she was shown a series of mugshots from which she was unable to ID the suspect. It's not known whether Peter Piper was one of the pictures she was shown, but what does become clear in the next reports is that he was using an alias. He was going by the name Robert Thomas. What I suspect happened next is that she talked to her girls. You see, they look out for one another on the streets. In their line of work, it's almost mandatory. I suspect they shared some stories and realized that a few of them had similar experiences with a man who fit the same description. A sexual predator who was already on the run doesn't have a lot of safe choices if he wants to stay out of prison. Prostitutes, at this point, are his best option to feed his need for forcible violent sex because he probably figures many of them won't even report it, thinking it's just an accepted hazard of the trade. And I am guessing, based on how long he was out there, a lot didn't report it. By this time, he had been out of jail for almost two years, so it's reasonable to assume he had done this way more times before this handful of women came forward. But the fact that he was preying on women in such a tiny geographic area suggests that he might not have been as smart as he thought he was. He was going to get caught eventually. It was just a matter of time before people started connecting the dots. What this says to me is that his need to be violent and sexually aggressive outweighed any common sense he possessed that suggested he should lay low if he wanted to stay out of prison. No, I think Peter Piper needed this. He needed the violence. He needed to instill fear. He needed to abuse women and force them to have sex. And it was a need that he would continue to feed over and over again. He needed to feel in control.
In November, a couple months after Rhonda's assault, two more prostitutes were assaulted, a day apart, November 17th and 18th of 1985. A young woman named Kelly was standing on the corner of Putman Street and Division Avenue at around 1.30 a.m. on the 17th when she was approached by a white male driving a 1978 Chrysler LeBaron, two-door, white over blue. What'll 40 get me, he asked. Kelly got into the car without answering, then suggested that they go to her room at the Beltline Motel on 28th Street. Piper refused. He said he didn't want to go to her room because he was afraid of being caught by police. It was an answer that he routinely gave when prostitutes suggested an inside location. He always brought his victims to an out-of-the-way spot, very much like the spot that he had brought Mary 20 years earlier. In this case, he drove to a nearby dirt road that ran parallel to a railroad track near a lake, known to locals as Pimple Lake. It was an industrial area just outside downtown. When he ordered Kelly into the back seat, she told him she wanted her money first. You're not getting any money, but I'm getting what I want. Take me back, she demanded. Piper refused and told her he had a gun, and then again ordered her into the back seat where he would force her to perform oral sex. When she finished, she demanded to be taken back, but Piper grabbed a long flashlight and forced her legs open, examining between them. And then he reached beneath the back of the driver's seat and pulled out a large white vibrator. I'm going to shove this up your ass, he growled. Kelly instantly grabbed the flashlight and smacked Piper over the head with it. But that's when she saw the gun on the floor, the back seat, and it was nearer to him than her. She scrambled out of the car, dragging her clothing along with her and trying to run away, one leg out of her jeans and pantyhose, the other leg still in. She ran toward the railroad tracks and up an embankment, scrambling through two disconnected boxcars and across a field, which would later be determined to be the Magic Railroad Storage Lot. She finally made it back to Chicago Drive, scrambling to pull on her clothing before flagging down a Port City cab near Burlingame. She would later tell police that when she had jumped from Piper's car, he threw it into gear and sped off, splashing mud all over her. Kelly believed that the only reason he didn't come after her was that he had completely removed his jeans during the interaction and had taken time to put them back on before he tried to pursue her, and that's what enabled her to get away. The very next night, Piper was at it again. He would take Loretta to the exact same location near Pimple Lake should be noted that this location is just minutes away from where Mary was assaulted. The area near Pimple Lake was accessed by a gravel road, and it was also wooded, out of the way, where he would essentially have the women as his prisoners. If they screamed, nobody would be near enough to hear them, particularly at that hour. Piper had approached Loretta near the same area as he had approached Kelly, on the same corner around 1 a.m., his preferred prowling hour. This time, though, he approached on a motorcycle. The two agreed on a price of $45, and he paid Loretta. But he only did that after they went through a generally understood song and dance, whereby both could assure one another that they weren't a cop. This involved him touching her breast 
and then showing her his penis. Piper told Loretta that his car was on 28th Street nearby, so she hopped on the bike and he headed to a residence. When they stopped, they got off the motorcycle and he unlocked the car. Loretta got in as Piper put both of their helmets into the trunk of his car, which was described as a medium-sized blue and white vehicle. He also removed a pair of coveralls that he had been wearing. But something about his demeanor at this point made Loretta ask him to take her back downtown where she felt comfortable. He simply responded, Okay. They headed back downtown and even stopped at a convenience store for cigarettes. After that, he headed to a warehouse behind which he accessed a dirt road that led to Pimple Lake. Where are we going? Loretta asked. I'm just taking a shortcut to Wealthy Street and Market, he lied. As they passed the north side of the lake, he said, Oh, I guess it's too rough to drive through. So he turned left, up a hill, and at the top of a knoll, there was a clearing. I want a date right here, he told her. Date. What strange terminology. Given that he knew he was about to force her to have sex with him without paying for it, as they'd originally agreed. Now I know that prostitutes often call these stops dates, but it's also interesting to recall that after Piper had been convicted of the vicious rape and beating of Mary, he went on to insist that their encounter had been consensual and further alleged that he had only beaten her because she instigated him after he refused to pay for sex. Nobody in their right mind believed that. Mary was a 17-year-old Catholic schoolgirl with a sterling reputation. No way she offered him sex for money. But I started to wonder about something. Was Piper replaying that incident with Mary over and over with these prostitutes? Clearly he doesn't understand or believe in consent because none of these acts are consensual. Mary certainly wasn't, but even with the prostitutes, once he reneged on the original monetary transaction, it was no longer consensual in any of these cases, and they all ask to be taken back where he found them. Then he forces the issue in every instance. It sure feels to me as though Piper is reliving the event with Mary through these encounters with prostitutes. He picked them all up in a vehicle from a corner just like Mary. He took them all to a wooded, out-of-the-way area that looked a lot like where he took Mary. And once they demanded to be taken back, just like Mary, he got violent with every one of them. It's almost like he's constantly trying to prove, in his own mind anyway, that Mary caused her own beating. And he's doing this by continuing to force the prostitutes to defend themselves once he tells them he won't be paying. Just some weird, convoluted way of him trying to continue to justify his assault on Mary, at least in his own head, by role-playing the same scene out over and over with the prostitutes. Common sense would say that if you want to have sex, but you'd also like to remain out of jail, you fork over the 40 bucks and do your business. You don't keep engaging in risky behaviors, 
that might land you in more trouble. It's almost as though he needs that risk, and his psyche needs to keep proving to himself, if nobody else, that it's the women who are to blame for what he's dishing out. Loretta says that once he had parked the car for their date, he asked her if she had ever been busted by cops. When she said that she hadn't, he freaked out, and then he accused her of being a cop. When she reminded him that she had just proven she wasn't before she got on the motorcycle by letting him touch her breast, Piper then said, Well, guess what? I'm a cop, and you're lucky that I picked you up instead of one of my buddies. They would have fucked you, and you would have gone to jail too. I got my gun right here, he said, and then he patted his hip. Piper took her hand and made her feel it, and Loretta later told police that she felt the handle of a gun. At that point, he ordered her into the back seat. When he got back there with her, he immediately demanded his money back. I'm going to get my money and have my pussy too, he threatened. You don't have to treat me like this. Just bring me back and you can have your money, Loretta told him. He grabbed her purse and took the money out and then began rifling through it, looking for her identification. After that, he grabbed her hard by the breast. You don't have to treat me like this, she repeated. To that, he responded by grabbing her by the throat and shoving her into the corner of the back seat of the car. Look, bitch, I can get real mean. You better get out of those clothes. He was holding Loretta there by the throat with one hand and pulling her clothes off forcefully with the other, in the exact same way that he had done to Mary. Also, like Mary, Loretta began to comply due to him choking her. She started helping him undress herself, hoping that he would let up on her throat. When he noticed that she was wearing a panty liner, he said, You're not on your period, are you? She said no, and then Piper ripped it off of her underwear and tossed it out the window. Later, when they returned to the scene, police would collect the panty liner as evidence. At this point, Loretta said that Piper grabbed a long flashlight and forced her legs open, inspecting her. He told her that he was checking for diseases. Presumably, he was comfortable with what he saw because he then took one leg out of his pants and forcibly had sex with her. According to Loretta, he kept asking her to kiss him during this time which is utterly disturbing, given the context and his earlier use of the word date. Afterward, they both put their clothing back on and she asked him to take her back. I told you I will and I will, he said. They traveled back by the warehouse in the same way that they had come. Yeah, you're lucky my buddies didn't pick you up, he repeated, still pretending to be a cop. You'd have been fucked and gone to jail too. Loretta tried to assure him that she wasn't going to make any trouble for him as they drove. She just wanted to get out of this alive, given she knew that he had a gun, and at this point he seemed the type who wouldn't hesitate to use it. Why do you do this? he asked. I got friends that could give you a job. Loretta didn't reply. Then he asked her if she had a man. She told him she didn't. She was from out of town. As they approached the area where he had originally picked her up, he warned, You yell or scream, and I'll run you over when you get out. As he pulled to a stop, Loretta opened her door. She quietly slipped a utility knife out of the purse that was on her lap. 
and hid it in her left hand as she leaned in, pretending to go in for a goodbye kiss. As she leaned closer, Piper said, You better watch out now and not get picked up by any more cops. Unfortunately, the click of the blade sliding out was loud enough for him to hear. As she swung the knife at him, cutting his shirt in the lower right portion near his abdomen, and put the car in reverse, throwing her off balance. Loretta fell out of the car as he backed all the way down the street, onto a cross street, then jammed the car into forward gear and fled the area. This, I imagine, was to keep her from seeing the license plate on the rear of his car. Now Loretta, she knew some of the local cops and she was not about to let this go, so she went directly to the Acapulco Cafe on South Division, looking for Officer Ingalls, a law enforcement officer that she knew, but she ran into two other officers who told her that he was off for the night. So Loretta left, and then she met up with a male friend, who went with her to retrace her steps, going back to the residence where Piper had dropped off the motorcycle and picked up his car. She copied down the address of the house on 44th Street. Piper's car was parked outside, so she jotted down the license plate number as well, both of these on the back of a Michigan Con gas bill, which she would eventually turn over to police. Then, in a further ballsy move, they began blowing the horn on their vehicle, hoping that someone would call the cops so they could report the incident. They laid on that horn for about 20 minutes, but nothing happened. It wasn't until two days later that she was finally able to get in touch with Officer Ingalls, who it appears had a working relationship with the women on the street, enough that they trusted him with information. Loretta relayed her story and turned over the address and the license plate. She also described the shirt that Piper had been wearing as flannel with red and white and blue plaid mixed with some black and brown. It's at this point that the officer appears to correlate her attack with the attack on Kelly the night before hers, based on the description of the car and suspect, as well as an area that both had been taken to when they were assaulted. Both Grand Rapids and Granville Police Departments met to go over the crime scene, after which a search warrant was issued by the prosecutor, based on the fact that these assaults were being committed with the use of a deadly weapon. At the residence on 44th Street on November 25, 1995, Peter Piper was taken into custody. The report reads, At 21.36 hours, we arrested a suspect, Robert Thomas, for criminal sexual conduct. The suspect's real name is Peter Piper, who is wanted for a prison escape. He was arrested and taken immediately to city lockup. Peter Piper is a suspect in several CSCs in our city, and it was reported that he used a pistol. At the address in Granville, Michigan, in a room in the northeast corner of the basement where Piper had apparently been staying, they found a pipe bomb, one Grand Rapids Press bill in the name of Robert Thomas, a pair of army fatigues, and a monster mask that they believed had been used in an armed robbery of a 7-Eleven store at the corner of Michigan and College Streets. They also found a black attaché case containing one flintlock pistol and some shells and a flannel shirt consistent with the one described by Loretta bearing a cut in the lower front portion of the shirt. A search of Piper's car was conducted and the following items were found. One pair of green coveralls with a red liner and a long flashlight. One strange item of note was the white vibrator he threatened one of the victims with 
After further investigation, another search warrant was issued days later, specifically for, quote, white vibrators with long ridges. That's vibrators, plural. They'd apparently received information from someone who sounds as if they had an intimate relationship with Piper and had to have been aware of the contents of his bedroom. The warrant was served to the owner of the home where he lived, and she directed the police to a downstairs bedroom. The vibrators are downstairs, the woman said, in what has to be the oddest exclamation in the entire report. When they reached the room, the woman retrieved a brown cardboard box from beneath a large pile of clothing that was stacked in the corner of the room. The evidence report described it as follows. Four individually wrapped white vibrators with long ridges. I can't imagine what necessitated the purchase or procurement of multiple vibrators. Perhaps you guys have some theories. Maybe they were a gift. Who knows? Also of interest, in the glove box of the car he had been driving, they found a checkbook for an account under the names Robert Thomas, Piper's alias, and a woman named Donna Lutkis, as well as a check stub from Von Solkema Farms, which was dated September 25, 1985. They also found a birth certificate in the name of Robert Kenneth Thomas. It seems as though Piper had managed to either forge or obtain a false birth certificate and had worked under the name for at least some period of time. The woman listed on the checkbook information was also listed, along with her brother, on the affidavit, which eventually released the car from impound, having been signed over by Peter Piper to them after his arrest. Pretty amazing, the jail absconder had been able to rent a room, either himself or with a female friend, set up a checking account with her, was gamefully employed, at least some of the time, and spent his nights preying on prostitutes in the Grand Rapids area. In the accompanying documents, we also learned that another prostitute was assaulted by Piper. A woman named Sandra recalled Piper picking her up on Division and LaBelle, saying that he would pay her 50 bucks. She told him she wanted to go to her room, but he refused, saying that once before he went with a girl and the police were waiting under the bed for him. I think her creep detector went off at this point because she tried to get out of the car and opened the door slightly. At this point, Piper put his hand in his coat and barked, Shut the door or I will blow your motherfucking head off. This woman noted that she had wanted to get out of the car because, after he said that, he grabbed her breast and twisted very hard, then grabbed her between the legs and pulled at her vagina roughly. When she didn't close the door all the way, Piper pulled the gun out of his pocket, put it to her left temple, cocked it, and said, I'm going to get some pussy tonight and I'm not going to pay for it. Right about here, Sandra made her move. She grabbed the steering wheel, jarring them off course, and then jumped out while it was still moving. She ran to the nearest store for help. It's noted in her police report that Sandra had told Kelly what happened to her, and both women were eventually able to ID Piper, along with Loretta. These brave ladies sharing information, and then all coming forward to report the incidents, are why Peter Piper is in jail today. It was their cases, which local prosecutors acted on very quickly, that got him back into jail. 
but there were two more crimes that had yet to be attributed to Peter Piper. Two murders that he had committed the year before in May of 1984. Stay tuned. find yourself idle or stagnant. It's important that you move from place to place. But if your knees start buckling, your stomach starts rustling, your ankles all swell. Oh, hell, I've been like that too, man. And here's what I do. Yeah. 